say it's good to be here this morning. Good to see the presence of all that are here. We have a wonderful audience this morning, and we're glad that you're here. We're starting a series uh, this month on the, the qualifications and duties of elders and deacons as we prepare for the end of February, which we will have opportunity, uh, the congregation here, to survey the congregation to see if we have qualified men that uh, are able to fill those positions. And uh, it's a very solemn and very serious uh, event, and, but we're excited about it. And this month, as we teach on these things, we encourage you to attend uh, faithfully because we're going to be going over these qualities and the works of, of these offices. And it's a time for us to study, a time for us to gather this information and to study that in, in our homes uh, amongst ourselves and to pray and to think seriously about these things. And then when we have an opportunity uh, at the end of February, uh, we will have two evangelists come in and survey the congregation. Uh, there are some things that I want to mention that I think this is, uh, when we consider this uh, opportunity, when we consider this program, uh, when we consider this effort in putting these men in offices, this is not a person-bashing opportunity. It's not our opportunity to go into a closed office door with two evangelists and then bash everybody that's not qualified. Your job is to examine the congregation now, compare them to the scriptures, and to determine if there is a man qualified. It's a positive exercise in the church. It is a time to consider men who are qualified and not go through the congregation and say, well, this man's not, and this man's not, and this man's not in the setting of the office with these evangelists. It's your opportunity to express the men that are qualified. And uh, so let's use this as a positive, uh, a positive thing that we uh, are doing for the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 4, as the Lord was condemning Israel because of the shepherds that saw, oversaw his flock they were not doing their work. And then he prophesied of a time that was to come that when the Lord our righteousness would reign over the earth, and that's Jesus, he prophesied of that time that which we now live in, in the church. And he says, during that time, I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. And so shepherds over the flock is the Lord's will for the church. And that's why we teach these things, and that's why we desire to fulfill the Lord's will. And so he's going, his desire is to set up men over the congregations that will shepherd them, that will feed them, that will lead them. And then he gives us in the New Testament a picture of the type of men that he desires to be in this position. And there are two passages of Scripture. We're going to read through these two passages, and then we'll talk about them in regards to the qualities of these men. Uh, as you read these passages, what you're seeing is a verbal picture or a word picture of the type of man 
that God desires to be in this office. That's what you're seeing, a word picture. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives Timothy a list as an evangelist. And he says, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. And so this is the list that Paul gives to Timothy. And he says, this is the type of man that I want to see in the office of an elder. And he gives this list. Now then, he gives Titus a list also in Titus chapter 1, verse 6. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou wouldst set in order things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I have appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of right or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word that has been, been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayer. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouth must be stopped who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for fifty lucre's sake. And so this is a list given to Titus. Now then someone says, well, those lists are different. Well, they're different in the sense of there are a few words that are different. See, Paul didn't give Timothy a list and says this is the type of man we're looking for, and then Titus a list that differs and says, okay, we're looking for a different type of man. He gave both men lists that mean the same, but have different wordings. And so when you read these passages of Scripture, we have to reconcile, we have to reconcile these lists. And so the study today is going to be a reconciliation of these lists. And we're going to use First uh, Timothy as our, our, ma our major passage, and we're going to reconcile Titus into First uh, Timothy. And we're going to see how closely they fit these are one list worded two different ways. They're not two different lists uh, of different types of men. And so the first thing we want to notice is before we go into the actual quali qualities of these men is I want you to notice in this passage that when we talk about bishops, we're talking about the same office as an elder. Notice in this passage, Titus was left in Crete to ordain elders in every city, and then he gives him the qualities and says, for a bishop must be. And so the word bishop and the word elder are the same office in the church. It's not two different offices. It's the same office. So we, we could uh, use bishop and elder interchangeably. And I know we choose elders in this particular congregation uh, as to pro probably hinder the confusion from other religions who use the word bishop. But bishop is a biblical term for an elder in the church. And so 
I want us to understand that. There's a lot of things that elders are called overseers, shepherds. Those are all synonymous terms used uh, with the office of an elder. And so I want us to start with the word desire. You know, that usually comes up as the first qualification of a man in an eldership. They say, well, they've got to desire the office. And I'm going to tell you something. Desire in this passage is not a qualification. It's not a qualification. Matter of fact, uh, when Timothy is talking about this, he's talking to to the idea of men who covet a position of power. You know, everybody wants to be the one who makes decisions, but not everybody wants to be responsible for the outcome. And there are a lot of times we want to be the top dog, and so we desire authority. And Timothy's talking to a person who desires that, and the word desire here means long for or covets after. That's what that word means. Now, we use the word in the modern English, you know, well, I desire to do this, and it's you know, I just want to. Well, in the King James, by the way, that's which I'm reading my passages out of, the word desire means to long for or covet after. So Timothy's talking to someone that's coveting a position of power, a position of authority. They just really desire it. They're they're coveting that. I want to be that. I want to be the top dog. I want to make the decisions. What Timothy reminds them of is this. If you desire that, if you covet after the office of a bishop, you need to understand that it is a work. It's a work. It's not just a title on a door. It's not just a position of authority, but it is a work. There are times when you have to get up in the middle of the night. There are sometimes you have to do things for the congregation when you'd rather do things with your family. And so Timothy's talking to these people who covet covets a power, a, a position of authority. And he says, it's not just an office. It's not just a position. It's a work that you're going to have to be involved with with your life. And then he goes on to say, for a man must be. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, a bishop then must be. Desire is not in the must-be list. We go to the must-be and said, this man's got to be these things because it says he must be. And desire's not there. Desire's before that. And Timothy's saying, if you covet after a position of authority, you need to understand that it's a work. And so therefore, you must be these things. And then he goes on and lists the qualities of an elder. It's more than an office. It's a work. Now then, someone says, well, don't you think we need men that want to do that? Well, there's a difference in men who want to do that and someone who covets that position. In 1 Peter 5, verse 1, as it speaks about the elders, it says, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre's sake, but of a ready mind. Now, there's a difference in this willingness, or the willingly here, and the desire that we read about in 1 Timothy. He says, not by constraint. That means you can't hogtie the guy and force him to do it. 
That won't work either. But a man's got to be willing to do it. Well, what does that mean, and what difference is that to the word desire? Well, I'm going to give you an example. There are not a lot of people who covet to be baptized. Not a lot of people coveting to be baptized. Matter of fact, it seems like sometimes we want to force people to do that. People don't covet to do this. They don't desire or covet, as the Bible uses that word, to do this. But you know when people are willing to do this? When they find out and understand the will of the Lord in that matter. And when they understand the benefit that there is to being baptized. And then men and women become willing to do that. And it's the same with the position of an elder or the office of an elder and the work of an elder. It's the Lord's will, and when we understand it's the Lord's will for the church, then we become willing to do that. When we understand the benefit to the church, then we become willing to stand up and say, I, I will do that. I will help lead. And so the Lord wants men who are willing to lead. Not those that just covet that office, but men that are willing to lead because they understand the benefit. They understand it's the Lord's will, and they're willing to do that. So let's talk about blameless. The word blameless comes up in these lists. Uh, blameless, and then Titus 1 verse 7 says blameless as the steward of God. Now, blameless, basically, it means unimpeachable. That's the definition of that word, unimpeachable. It's above reproach or high moral standard. Now, this, this doesn't mean that a man makes no mistakes because if he made no mistakes, he would be Jesus Christ. And no man, no man is that except for Jesus himself. So it's not talking about, that, about a man that doesn't make mistakes. We all make mistakes. We all mess up from time to time, so he's not talking about a man that's, that's perfect. He's talking about someone that lives with a high moral standard. And sometimes that might be uh, subjective. In other words, there, there's a judgment that we have to make, and when we look at a person, we can tell whether they, are, they live at a high moral standard or not. Sometimes I think, well, maybe if someone, someone lived uh, like I do, would they be blameless? That, that might be a bad standard. But, you know, sometimes we consider ourselves the high moral standard. And a lot of times people that we look at may be a little higher moral standard than we are. We need to be careful about that. So when we're looking at a person, we're looking at just a person that's, that's unimpeachable. In other words, uh, someone explained it to me like this years ago, that uh, if something happens, that that man's not going to be the first one that you blame. In other words, if something's missing, they're not going to say, well, I know, I know he did it <laughs> because of his reputation. He's, he lives a high moral standard. He's, his life is that way. It's a man whose life is a good moral character. And when a person sees his life, 
They can follow in a godly way. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us in Hebrews 13 when it talks about the elders. It says, remember them that have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. That word conversation means manner of life. So it's got to be a man that you can look at and go, you know, they live a high moral standard and that's an example for me to live that you can look at their life and see their faith and go, you know, that, that's an example for me. And that's the kind of man that's described as blameless. Now then, the Bible says that he has to be a husband of one wife. Uh, that is, is a scriptural marriage to one woman. It's a man who is committed to his wife. Now then, it's a marriage that God allows by scriptures, and we need to be very careful that sometimes we, we add too much to the scriptures or add more to the scriptures than God does. Because sometimes we want to say, well, you know, a, a, a man has a wife and his wife dies and he gets remarried and therefore he, he's, he's been the husband of two wives, and it's not talking about that. It's talking about the relationship the man is in. It's talking about is he committed to his wife? He's not a, a carouser. He's not out having more than one woman. He's a one-woman man. He's dedicated to his wife. He's not a polygamist. He's dedicated to his life. And we need to be very careful that we don't place uh, laws upon people that God does not because in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, some forbid people to marry and said, you can't marry. And I know in the church over the years that sometimes we, we want to pass some laws and say, well, you can't get married or you can't remarry. And we need to be very careful about that because that would be forbidding to marry where God allows. And then we would be teaching a doctrine of the devil. And so we need to be very careful about that as it speaks about forbidding to marry in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1. Some of these things may raise questions. You may you may go, you know, I need to think about these things and we want to encourage you. And that's why we're doing them this month, to give you time to pray, give you time to think. And if you have questions, we want you to ask them. We'll be willing to sit down with you and look at the scriptures over some of these things. So uh, please, please don't hesitate to ask questions uh, about these things. Now then, as we talk about the husband of one wife, I've borrowed I borrowed some from uh, Jason's topic in that I've got to mention the wife of an elder. Uh, as you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and Paul goes into the deacons, he says, likewise, the deacons. And so likewise means there's something similar between the elders and the deacons. Now, in, in the deacon list, he didn't mention the type of wife, what he mentioned was that you had to be the husband of one wife. And then he says, likewise, the deacons, and then he lists in verse 11, even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. And so the wives of these men, the elders and the deacons, must be of a good character. They must be grave, not slanderers, sober. That means of sound mind, and we'll talk about that in a minute. They must be faithful in all things. That means trustworthy in all things. 
And I want to mention uh, the, the not slanderers here. And uh, as Dee and I, when we were uh, ordained to the eldership, this was pressed upon us. There are a lot of times when, when the wives of elders are involved in counseling, especially with perhaps another lady, uh, and they're going to hear sensitive things. And the elders' wives need to understand those things cannot be talked about. It cannot be mentioned when, in appropriate settings. There are some secrets you may have to hold uh, that other people don't need to know. You see, our purpose is the ministry of reconciliation. Our purpose is to bring people closer to God and to reconcile their life with God. And so sometimes we counsel people and we try to bring their lives closer to God. And we don't need to say certain things uh, that are kept in our, in our secret, in our trust. Uh, the Strong's definition mentions a word, uh, traducer. Traducer. And it is a political term. And that would mean to speak bad or lie about someone so as to damage their reputation. And in politics, they do that. You know, if their opponent's getting ahead of them, they'll just slide in a phrase of something they know bad about the person to get things off a of kelter and to ruin the reputation of the other people. Sometimes there are things that we need to keep quiet. Some things we speak when it's appropriate, but we need to make sure that we're not a slanderer or tailbearer. And that goes, it's a good lesson for all of us as children of God. We need, we need to be about the ministry of reconciliation. Now then, we'll move on to vigilant. It's 1 Timothy 3 and 2. We're to be vigilant as elders. That means watchful, cares for the church, knows the flock, tends to them. As a shepherd would a flock of sheep, they need to be uh, watching them and taking care of them. I know cattle ranchers, you know, they go get up early in the morning and they drive out to the fields and they count the heads of, of their cattle and they tend to the ones that are sick. And so it's the same way that elders, uh, the responsibility of elders, they are to be vigilant and watch for the flock. Titus 1 says, as the stewards of God. And I want to mention the steward here is the manager. That's what it is, the manager of the flock of God. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit to them, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account, that they do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. See, it's the elder's job. Part of their responsibility is watch for your soul. And so, you know, if I'm... If, if I'm a member of the church and I'm heading off down the wrong direction and you see one of the elders and go, hey, you need to come back this way a little bit. You need to pay attention to what you're doing. Don't get upset. Know that they love you and are doing that because they're watching for your souls. A lot of times we read in the book of Revelation and we read about the four and 20 elders sitting around the throne of God. And I asked somebody one time, why do you suppose that these elders are sitting around the throne like that? The person said, because, well, they're, you know, in the hierarchy. That's their position. And I said, no, it's probably they're giving accounts. 
They're being called before God and giving account of what they've been entrusted with. A heavy responsibility. Because they're entrusted with the souls to manage them, to watch for them. And so it is a responsibility. Because we're vigilant and we watch for the, ch- the souls of the church, we're not to be self-willed. And that means selfish. I, as an elder, don't do things just because I want to. I'm to do things because it benefits the flock. It benefits the church as a whole. So I'm not to be self-willed. I'm to be just, and that means fair, Titus 1 and verse 8. That means I've got to do things fair, and this comes, I think, it plays into the idea how the man runs the house. Sometimes we have kids that want uh, do things, and, and one of them will go, well, that's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair. And I may be a member of the Lord's body, and I may think, well, this is not fair. And I need to consider the elders that they're going to do things fairly. It may not be what I want, but they're going to do things fairly. They're going to not be self-willed, and they're going to watch for our souls. We're to be sober. Elders are to be sober. That means sound in mind. And I know we're going to talk about uh, giving to wine here, but this would go with any any drugs or any substance that would cause us not to think straightly. The Lord wants elders to be able to make decisions a righteous and sound way. And so when we talk about being sober in mind, one thing that would cause us not to be would be to given given to wine. That's both given in Titus 1, 7, 1 Timothy 3 and 3. The underlying Greek word here is uh, perinos, which is defined as drunken, Addicted to wines, and I've given you, uh, there's a Bauer Danker and Art and Greenrich uh, Greek definition, also affairs given to wine or being drunken. And then Strong says to stay near wine, that is a tippling or a topper. Uh, we would call that a wino in today's terms. Well, I say today's terms. It was, when I was growing up, it used to be a wino. Now it's just an an addict, I think, but but when it says staying near wine, it means a person that's dependent upon as a child staying near their mother. <clears throat> so you watch a little child, as that child hugs its mother when it's when it needs something. It hugs its mother. It's dependent on that mother. And so that's what it means by staying near wine. It's someone who depends upon drinking that wine. It's someone who is dependent or addicted to that, to that wine. That would cause us not to be sober. Also, some other things that would cause us not to be sober is sometimes pride. Pride would cause us not to be sober, and we find pride in when it says that an elder is not to be a novice, 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. That means a new convert. And it says, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. And so here, an elder is not to be a novice. Now, I want to tell you something. Novice is not defined by a length of time. There is no year, date, or period put upon this, this particular quality. What it means is a person that, who is mature enough in the faith, a person that has the ability uh, to teach and to confront other, uh, other doctrines. It's a person who has the knowledge and wisdom and experience 
that they need to be an elder or a manager of God's children. And so a novice is not just a beginner. He's someone who has some experience and maturity in the Lord. This person has to be able to convince and exhort and convince a gainsayer in Titus 1 verse 9. To exhort and convince a gainsayer means to instruct or admonish or convict or refute one who contradicts the truth. That's a gainsayer. So it's got to be someone with the knowledge to be able to stand up against, and I think he's talking about false teachers here, that can refute those things to protect the flock from a false doctrine. So they have to have enough experience in the faith to be able to do that, to exhort and convince. So it can't be a novice. You know, a novice, if you put someone in that just comes into the church, has been converted, and they don't, they don't have the wisdom and the knowledge how to, how to do that, and you put them in leadership, then they get all prideful and go, well, look here, they made me, you know, I'm top dog right now. And already you're in the condemnation of the devil. In other words, that's the reason the devil was condemned. That's what it's saying. Pride. He was lifted up. Thought he was more than what he, what he really was. And so if you put a novice in that position, that pride fills their heart, and then they fall into the same condemnation that Satan would. Given to hospitality, uh, here we have the word given again. Mentioned given, not given to wine. Here we have given to hospitality. It means addicted to hospitality. There, there are people that love people. So when you see this, this man and you see all these qualities, one, he's got to be a per- person that loves people that likes to talk to people, that likes to be hospitable to people, that, that uh, is generous to people. Uh, Titus 1.8 says a lover of hospitality in that same, same idea. That means one who's generous or hospitable. A lover of good men, also mentioned in Titus 1.8. That means prefers good people. In Romans 12, I think, is a definition of what this means, preferring a uh, lover of good men, Romans 12, verse 10 says, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. We prefer to be around God's people. That's the kind of people we want to be around. And so as an elder, you look at that person, does that person love to be around God's people? Or does that person slink off to the house and, and, and never communicates to God's people? See, there's a difference. An elder has to be a, 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 a people person, one who loves people, loves to be around people, good behavior, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2. And uh, it's kind of an interesting phrase, as Timothy uses, of good behavior, but I think it's defined as holy in Titus 1 verse 8. Titus uses the word holy there. It means good behavior means ordered life, well-arranged, seemingly modest, you know, it's not a person that's, that's over the top where people can't reach them. Uh, you know, we, we might look at a billionaire and say, well, that person's way up there and I can't reach him. Uh, a person that, it's, uh, an elder's not to be a person that also is disorganized, that their life is just in the, in the pits. But they're there to have good, a good, holy life, well-ordered, uh, well-arranged, seemingly, and modest. Holy there means pious towards God, a life set apart for the Lord, a holy worshiper. Now, why is this important? Well, 
in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Holy hands refers to your life. You know, a lot of the, the world will say, well, that means you got to lift your hands in prayer, and that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about when you approach God, you need to have a clean life. It'd be like our child who had their hands in a chocolate cake, and then they say, Mama. Well, Mama's going to say, well, let's get your hands clean before I pick you up. Well, we are that child asking God for favors. We pray to God, and we say, God, give me or grant me this petition. And God says, when you lift your hands to me in this request, you need to have them clean. Your life needs to be a clean life. James 5, verse 16 says this, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And James, it gives instructions and talks about those who are in need or sick or afflicted, call the elders. Now, what if an elder is not have a clean life? That's the one you call for this effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. Their prayers may be hindered. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it talks to us about how we treat, uh, living with our wives according to knowledge, that your prayers be not hindered. So there are things that hinder our prayers to God, and as an elder, I don't want my prayers hindered, especially when I pray for someone else. I want God to hear those prayers of intercession. Now, a man, an elder has to be apt to teach, and we've kind of touched on the idea of uh, them uh, teaching a gainsayer or convicting a gainsayer, but I want to spend just a moment on this apt to teach phrase. First Timothy chapter two or three and verse two: A bishop then must be, and he says, apt to teach. The apt means skillful in teaching. Now then, you know, sometimes the question comes up: Well, you know, how skillful is skillful, and does a man? Can an elder just teach publicly and not privately? Or can an elder just teach privately and not publicly? And those questions come up when we talk, talk, start talking about elders being apt to teach. And I want just to, to put this passage in front of you in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. This is specifically talking about evangelists. And he says, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men apt, to teach, apt to teach. There's two, two people that the Lord commanded to be apt to teach, and that's elders and evangelists. Same commandment. And so I would ask you this. If we had an evangelist that come hold a meeting for us and, and he got in the pulpit and taught us a sermon, we would expect him to be able to expound that to us, wouldn't we? And then after church, you say, well, you know, I've got a friend that I'd like for you to study with. And that evangelist says, no, I, I can't do that. I'm not able to study with somebody privately. You'd say, you're not apt to teach. We expect an evangelist to teach publicly and privately. And so it is with an elder. An elder is to teach publicly and privately. Titus 1, verse 10 through 11, for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. 
An elder has to be able to teach publicly and privately and be able to at least stop a false doctrine by the knowledge of the Word of God. So an elder has to be apt to teach, has to be patient. That means gentle or mild when he's dealing with people. Sometimes there are situations where there's a lot of anxiousness and there's uh, maybe animosity or anger or whatever, and, and an elder has to, to be patient or gentle when he's dealing with people. And so Titus was to teach, to speak of no man, to, uh, to be no brawlers, but gentle. Gentle there, I think, is what he's talking about when Timothy says patient. Showing all meekness to all men. And so under patient here, you'll find uh, a couple of other phrases, and I think this falls under being patient, gentle, or mild. Not soon angry, that means quick-tempered. You know, if I'm just, I just quickly jump to mad all the time. Well, that hinders me from doing the work as, as an elder because people won't come talk to you if you just jump off into mad already. Not a striker, that means ready to fist or, I just, or just wanting to fight everybody. Contentious or quarrelsome, that's a, not a brawler. Just argue all the time. Sometimes the elders, we just have to shut our mouth and not say anything and then, then make correct decisions based upon the knowledge that we have. And so this is the type of man that the Lord is looking for, one who's temperate. Temperate means self-controlled, has power over things. Don't let things control them, but they, they have sound mind that they control things of, of this world. For example, money. Uh, you could put this under, uh, under sobriety. Sometimes money causes us not to think soberly. But here, a person... I put it under temperate, so it's a person that's not covetous. They don't have the, the love of money. Now, we all, we all need money. We have to pay our bills and eat our food and support our families, and, and that's not what the Lord's saying, but it's that love that drives us to where we do things that we shouldn't do. Maybe we work 100 hours a week because we can get that overtime and we forsake our family. That love has caused us to, uh, to go astray. So a person that's not just covetous of money and a person that's not greedy of filthy lucre. That, and filthy lucre means dirty money. They're, all, they're not cheating people out of things, uh, pulling scams uh, on people to get an extra dollar. Uh, Titus says not given to filthy lucre. Timothy says not greedy to filthy lucre. So it's talking about that dirty money. In other words, illicit gain as opposed to uh, money we work for, hardly. In John 12, verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put in. And that's talking about Judas Iscariot. He had the bag of money for the disciples. And it was his idea that we can, all, we can scam people out of, of, of money. That's why he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He goes, you know, I can sell Jesus. We get the 30 pieces of silver. Jesus will walk through unscathed, and, and we'll have that extra 30 pieces of silver. That's filthy lucre. And so we have to be temperate in the things that we deal with in life. Faithful children. Uh, Titus 1, verse 6, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of right or unruly. Now then, over the years, this word faithful has 
caused a lot of uh, contention in, in the church. Faithful means trustworthy. Trustworthy. That's what the word means. Three verses down from verse 6 into verse 9, it says, Holding fast the faithful word as he had been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince a gainsayer. Whatever the word means in, in verse 6, when it says faithful children, it means in verse 9, faithful word. It means trustworthy. A lot of times we will say that verse, that word means that these children have to be baptized believers. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what it says. It says they have to be trustworthy children. In other words, the father has the trust of these children that they're going to obey him. They're going to submit to him. Not accused of right or unruly, which means they're unrulable. Now, that doesn't mean that these children don't have problems. Every child has a problem, and every once in a while, a girl will get under their saddle, and they're going to be wild, and they're going to throw a fit. And... But how does that man handle that? Does he handle it in a godly way where that child will end up submitting to his discipline? That's what it's talking about. A faithful, trustworthy, or can be relied on. These children are not accused of right or unruly. That means they're rulable. Doesn't mean they won't have problems. It means they're able to be ruled. Having his children in subjection, that's what Timothy uh, 3 and 4 says uh, compared to Titus 1 and 6. When you compare those, it's talking about a child that submits to his father. And the father has the ability to discipline and have those children in subjection. They're trustworthy of their father. Ruling his house well. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 4. It talks about a man who is the head of his house. He's the leader of the house. He rules his house. Now rule there, we've given it a, a modern English term, and we think that means that we carry a big stick, and that's not what, that's not what it means. Rule may, means to take care of. We'll find that when we read the Scripture. So he's to rule well his own house. He's to be the leader. He's to be the manager. He's to be the, the one who heads that household in the right direction. Notice in 1 Timothy 3, it says that he, how can he rule the church? If he can't rule his house, how can he rule the church? And that means take care of the church. If a man can't take care of his family, if he can't rule his family well, he can't rule the church. And I've said this many times, the church is like a house full of kids. <laughs> Only they're adults. <laughs> and that's the truth. Just because we're older doesn't mean we don't act like kids sometimes. Sometimes you have a person that come to an elder and say, I want this, and another one comes to the other elder and says, I want this, trying to get their way, just like kids playing two parents against each other. That's why communication between parents is important, right? It's the same way in the church. There are problems in the church. There are things that need to be dealt with in the church, and if a man can't lead his house, how can he take care of the church? Now then, it says he must have children. 
currently or has had children, he ruled in their homes. Having children in subjection. Now then, my children are grown and they're gone. But I spent a lot of years raising them. <laughs> and what it's talking about is a man that has this experience of raising children or having children that he's raised. And a question came up the other day. Someone says, well, how many children can a, does a man have to have? And I would, add, and I would submit this to you. If you filled out a, a piece of a legal paper and it says, do you have children and you only had one, what answer would you put? You put yes, I have children. So as long as he has children that he has experienced ruling over, then he falls under this. His leading ability is directly linked to his ability to rule his house. Do we use our wisdom in leading? Do we communicate? Are we actively involved in the lives of those we lead? Are we overbearing? Are we harsh? Are we too soft? You see, all these things come in play as a man rules his house. But When you see a man that rules his house well, that's the picture that you see. You see a man, okay, that, that, that father has his house. He rules his house well. He takes care of that family. He leads them in the right direction. And so those are a few things you need to consider. To have a good report from without. First Timothy 3, verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into the reproach and snare of a devil. In other words, he's got to have a good re- report, a good uh, uh reputation on, from the outside of the church. A lot of times we think, we, we look at this as does the man pay his bills to the utility companies on time or is he trying to cheat the bank or, uh, you know, outside the church, a man's business, he may have business dealings with people and they may think, well, you know, he's just a scoundrel and in the church, that's not known. So he's got to have a good reputation and you can tell talking to people's friends you can, uh, outside the church, you can tell by uh, visiting someone's boss and, and, you know, you'll get, well, man, he's, a, uh, he's upstanding. He's, he's all right. Wish you had a million of them like him. Or they're good people serving God. So he's got to have a good reputation or a good report of them that are without the church. And so that's the picture, the word picture of the man. When you look at men in this congregation Think about these things as a word picture. Is that what this man looks like? Too many times we look at these things and go, he's not, he's not, he's not. So look at a man and say, is he? In a more positive light. I think it is a positive exercise in the church. I think it's a good thing in the church. And I think we have uh, good quality men in the church. Now then, as we close, I know this has been a little lengthy. Um, Sometimes I get on my soapbox on some of these things, and I probably could go longer on some of them, and it may have raised questions in your mind, and I want you to know, I want you to ask those questions. If you have them, I want you to study on them, meditate on these things. Look at the scriptures. If you have questions, ask us.
As we close, I want to read 1 Peter 5 and verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. So as we close, when we look at men that are qualified as being leaders of the flock, understand it's a work. The work includes feeding the church and taking the oversight thereof. And Brother Kerry's going to, uh, in his lesson, deal with the work of the church or the work of the elders and, and some of these things, so we'll not linger on that. But I want us to understand that eldership is a work. It's something you, you're involved in with your life. And we need men and their wives to be willing to do that, willing to take this position and lead the church because it's the Lord's will and there's a great benefit to the church. It's a blessing to the church. There's peace in the church when we have good leadership. As we think about the eldership, I want us to think about our obedience to God. We obey God in the things of the church. We need to obey things in the uh, things of God in salvation. When we understand it's the Lord's will to, to be buried with him in baptism and that we understand the benefit is that we have salvation to our souls, then we become willing to submit to God. And the Lord's calling you today. If you have not obeyed the gospel, we want you to do that this morning. If you're in need of prayer this morning and we can assist you in that way, we ask you to come as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.